The Bible is very clear that while people get saved during the tribulation, let scripture interpret scripture, people who have heard the gospel prior to the rapture of the church will not be part of this great multitude that give their lives to Jesus Christ. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. We're in chapter seven of our study of the Revelation, and we're continuing our look at a mysterious multitude outlined in verses nine to 17. Let's rejoin Dr. Brogy as he addresses the point in the tribulation known as the abomination of desolation, which is also recorded in the Gospels of Matthew and Luke in what are termed as the Olivet Discourse. In Matthew 24, 14, 24, 15 is the abomination of desolation. When does that happen in the seven-year period? In the middle. So we're not at the middle yet. 24, 15. This gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. Now, sometimes you will hear Christians say that Jesus cannot return until the gospel goes out to the entire world. I hope you know that that is not true. Jesus has never needed anything to happen for him to come and catch up his church. There's not a single prophecy that has ever needed to be fulfilled in the history of the church since the day of Pentecost that needed to be fulfilled for Jesus to come back to rapture his church. All kinds of prophecy that need to be fulfilled for the second coming to happen. And so, yes, this gospel will go out to the whole world, and then the second coming will happen. And when is that going to happen? You know, you'll hear missiologists say, well, we've got to get the gospel in every translation. We have a speaker coming. He worked with me several years when I was at Duke University. He was in my Bible studies, and Dan Scribner will come. He's uh, the person who, for the last 30 years, has cataloged every unreached people group in the world. And God is using them in a phenomenal way. And the Joshua Project and the information they supply is used by every mission agency in the world. He's going to be one of our speakers. I'm very excited that he is able to come this year to present to us. But he reminded me yesterday that there are 1,700 languages that still need be, to be translated that people might have a copy of the Scriptures in their language. Now, you'll meet some missiologists who will say, well, Jesus can't come by until we get all the Bibles translated and everybody can hear the gospel that way. That's not true. That's not true. That's not true. Now, should we try to put the Bible in every language and tongue? Absolutely. We're doing it as a church family with the Pacunas who have never before had any scripture in their language. And because of your generosity, three Old Testament books are being done. They're almost completed. And then in April, we'll go to three New Testament books for the Bakuna people. But what the church hasn't done in 2,000 years, God is going to do through 144,000 Jewish evangelists during the time of the Great Tribulation. So if you remember, chapter 6 ends... For the great day of their wrath has come, and who, who is able to stand? And the answer comes in the seventh chapter. Look at seven in verse one. 
And I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, so that no wind would blow on the earth or on the sea or any tree. On this passage, you see four angels depicted as standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back something. We studied last time that this does not mean that the Bible teaches the world is flat and that there are four literal corners. This is an idiomatic expression. It's an expression that we use even to this day. I spoke to my friend in Israel this week. I could have said to him, what's happening in your corner of the world? It's an expression that's used here in Revelation 7 to refer to the remotest parts of the earth, and the context will bear that out as we go through this passage. Every section of the globe through these 144,000 are going to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that idiom is no more unscientific than when the weatherman speaks of the sun setting. We know the sun doesn't set. We know the earth rotates. It's just an idiomatic expression. And these four angels are commanded to hold back the four winds. And living here in a section of the world where we get hurricanes, most of you know something about the devastating power of wind. And that destructive power is going to be unleashed through the four angels who will blow the four trumpets. But this fifth angel who steps up to the plate tells them to hold it back. Look at verse 2. I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun, having the seal of the living God, and he cried out with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea. Angels are ranked and organized. And this fifth angel has, we're told, the seal of the living God. And with a phonomega, we get our word megaphone from it, with a loud voice, he tells these angels to hold back their judgment. Typically, through the revelation, they are unleashing judgment. But on this particular case, they are called to stay the judgment, to hold it back. And the things that they are called to hold back are precisely what the four trumpets are going to bring on the earth. Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the bondservants of our God on their foreheads. And if you were here last time, we studied from Scripture, letting Scripture interpret Scripture, that the word seal is used in the Bible as a mark of ownership and a mark of protection. It's no mystery to the New Testament saint because the Bible says when you hear the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having believed, you are sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. For how long? For the day of redemption. You're marked as God's. That's why Paul can say the Lord knows those who are His. They have His seal. If you've been born again, you have the seal of God upon you. You're marked and you're protected for the day of redemption. Doesn't mean that you can't be persecuted or lose your life. But this seal has an oomph to it. These 144,000 can't die. No one can take their life. Why? Because God Almighty wants them as a God who loves to see people pray, uh, saved. He wants them to preach the gospel without any hindrance at all. And that's the major difference between their seal and ours. They are supernaturally protected to preach the gospel. And you will notice that there are 144,000 who are specifically identified in this verse as the sons of Israel. Here it is, Israel, front and center. The United Nations met yesterday. They're going to meet again tomorrow over this new decision 
concerning the city of Jerusalem. It's not by accident because Jerusalem, as we study through the Revelation, is going to play a major role in end time events. 85,000 Palestinians protested yesterday. It is only the start of what we are going to see. It's Israel front and center. And that may be surprising to people because now, unfortunately, though a minority of evangelicals still has the political ear of a lot of people, the position that I am teaching you, while it was standard fare in Bible-believing churches 30 years ago, it has become a minority view. The view that God is done with the Jewish people, that the church is the new Israel, and that is not true. God is not done with Israel. Salvation history from beginning to end has happened on this piece of property we call Israel, the land of Israel, Eretz Israel. The land of Israel, it was there that the Messiah was born. It is there that the Messiah is going to return. Because as we saw last time, God cut a covenant, a one-way covenant, an unconditional covenant that had nothing to do with the obedience of Abraham or his offspring. That God is going to complete salvation history through the Jewish people. And notice that they are from every tribe of the sons of Israel. Here they are. Here are the tribes listed on this next slide, which is kind of interesting. Again, they are just from Israel's tribes. But as you read this list, what you immediately discover, if you read it carefully, there are two tribes that are missing. As you read the various lists of tribes in the Bible, two are missing here. Neither the tribe of Dan nor the tribe of Ephraim are represented. Dan is not here, and there's a reason. Remember Jacob on his deathbed? And by the Spirit of God, in Genesis 49, I preached a whole sermon on it, he speaks a prophecy over his 12 sons. And concerning Dan, he refers to him as a serpent. Because he knows by the Spirit of God that when they get into the promised land, he is going to do the work of a serpent. That tribe will introduce idolatry into the nation. If you remember, they get into the land, eventually the kingdom of these 12 tribes split into 10 northern and 2 southern tribes. And amongst the 10 northern tribes are Dan and Ephraim. And Dan introduces idolatry to the people. God said, listen, you are to worship where my name dwells at the place I appointed for you to worship, which was only one place in Israel, and that was in Jerusalem. But not wanting to lose any of the 12 of the 10 northern tribes, Jeroboam, or Jeroboam if you prefer, set up two places of worship. Uh, let me read it to you. It's found in 1 Kings chapter 12. So the king consulted and made two golden calves. And he said to them, is it too much for you to go to Jerusalem? Of course it is. Behold your gods, O Israel, that brought you up from the land of Egypt. And so he set one in Bethel and one in Dan. Jeroboam put a golden calf in Dan and one in Bethel. And so you'll see the expression from Dan to Bethel repeated in the Old Testament, describing the northernmost point of the ten tribes and the southernmost point. No need to inconvenience yourself and go down to Jerusalem. And of course, him not wanting to lose any of the Jewish people. But we saw in spite of that, some went anyway, and that the ten tribes are not lost at all. But they had these two places of worship. And if you went with me last time to Israel, we literally went to the place 
where they worshipped in the northern section, where the tribe of Dan, the land God gave, and the archaeologists have unfounded the very town and the place and the altar where this golden calf was placed. And again, God had warned about such idolatry right when Moses, at the end of his life, gathers all the Jewish people before God takes his life up there on that great mountain. We read in Deuteronomy 29, I make this covenant and this oath not with you alone, meaning not just with you Jews who are present here today, but with him who stands here with us today before the Lord our God, as well as with him who is not here today. For you know that we dwelt in the land of Egypt and that we came through the nations which passed by and you saw their abominations and their idols which were among you, wood and stone and silver and gold, so that there may not be among you man or woman or family or tribe whose heart turns away today from the Lord our God to go and serve the gods of these nations. And so it may not happen when he hears the words of this curse that he blesses himself in his heart saying, I shall have peace even though I follow the dictates of my own heart as though the drunkard could be included with the sober. The Lord would not spare him for then the anger of the Lord and his jealousy would burn against that man. And the Lord would separate him from all the tribes of Israel for adversity, according to all the curses of the covenant that are written in the book of the law. What God said through Moses, he meant. God says what he means, he means what he says. And because idolatry is serious to God, and because they set up these golden calves in Dan and Bethel, God excludes the tribe of Dan as being the part of those Jews who will be sealed and protected to preach the gospel. Now, greed is a form of idolatry, Paul says. Sexual immorality is a form of idolatry. We think, oh, you know, I'm not an idol worshiper. Understand, though, a third of the planet still has this old-fashioned bow down at a tree, bow down at an object kind of idolatry. But we in America have idolatry ways of, idolatrous ways of our own. And God made it very clear that there would be consequences to these people if they did that. And Ephraim did the exact same thing. They also established places of idolatrous worship. And so you will not find these two tribes. Now, God's not going to abandon his people. He made an unconditional covenant, but there are consequences to the Mosaic covenant if you disobeyed it. And before we're done with the revelation, we're going to see those two tribes restored. Okay, you with me? That's all backdrop, background, some of it reviews, some of it new. Let's get into the meat of the chapter as we look at this mysterious multitude. First there in your note-taking outline, I want you to think about the description of this multitude. In verses 9 through 12, John gives us a detailed description of this massive number of people. And he highlights two characteristics. First, the number in this multitude. Think first about the number in them. Verse 9, after these things, I looked... Behold, a great multitude which no one could count. What a wonderful image of the grace of God. Paul will write, it is a trustworthy statement deserving your full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. By the way, why does Community Bible Church exist? Why do we exist? Why should we exist? According to the Bible, there's only three reasons. Number one, to exalt the Savior. Number two, to edify the saints. Number three, to evangelize the lost. 
That's why we exist, to exalt the Savior, to edify the saints, and to evangelize the lost. And if we stop doing those things, God will take his hand off of us. A lot of churches just want to get together for mutual edification. Teach me the Bible, but don't ask me to do anything. Don't ask me to serve through my gifts. And certainly, don't ask me to win the lost because we pay you to do that, preacher. No, you don't pay me to win lost souls for you. Now, I'll equip you and I'll help you and I will lead by example. But I can't do what God has called you to do. But God is a God who delights in the salvation of souls. Jesus said, the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. Peter said, the Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, because he's not willing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. And you see the heartbeat of God being expressed here in verse 9. After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude, which no one could count. Now, the truth revealed in verse 9 is that after Christ comes for his church, there's a multitude of people so big that John doesn't even begin to count them. And they are called saints in other places here in the Revelation. They're not church saints, but they are saints. They're what we call tribulation saints. The word saint, hagaioi in the plural, means to be set apart. And God has set apart people in every age. A saint is not a saint because of things he's done. A saint is a saint because of something he's received. He has received the gift of God, which is eternal life. And there's a great number of people who are saved during this time. Now, occasionally in the Bible line, I've been asked, well, if the Holy Spirit, the restrainer, is removed from the world during the time of the great tribulation period, then how on earth can people come to know Christ? And the answer is, in the same way they came to know Christ before the day of Pentecost. It is true that the church will be removed and the restrainer in terms of holding back sin will be lifted. But the Holy Spirit will still be working in the world, convicting men of sin, righteousness, and judgment, because no one seeks God, no, not one. And just like in the Old Testament, a man didn't automatically seek God. God stirred his heart by a work of the Spirit. In every age, he is at work. And so when the present age ends, when the church is caught up and raptured, his influence will continue. And so a great multitude, which no one could number. Now think about this. On the day of Pentecost, 3,000 people were saved. A few days later, 5,000 men, excluding the women and children and their families, were saved. Probably 15 to 20,000 people on that day. And as powerful and as magnificent as that expression of power was in that day, it doesn't even begin to compare to the number that is going to be saved during this time frame. Multitude of millions of people across the planet. Now, you might be listening today and thinking, you're listening, live streaming, maybe sitting here or in one of our campuses, and you say, well, that's good news because I haven't received Jesus yet. At least I'll know if this rapture happens like you say, Pastor. I'll have time to get my heart right and receive Jesus then. No, you won't. 
hold your finger here, turn to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. You're in the book of Revelation. Go to the left. If you find any book in the Bible that begins with the letter T, you're in the section. All the T books in the Bible are in the New Testament. They go from long to short. That's how you remember the order. The word Thessalonians is shorter, longer than Timothy, longer than Titus. So you have first and second Thessalonians, first and second Timothy, followed by Titus. And they come right after Gary eats popcorn. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. So I had a guy in my Bible study. His name was Gary. He said, this is how I, I told him the great electric power company. He said, no, it's Gary eats popcorn. Okay. So you got Gary eats popcorn, the tea books in the Bible. There's nine books in the New Testament right there. You'll learn that in the discovery class if you've been there. Right, Matt? Do we still teach him that? Yeah, he's shaking his head. Yeah, amen. I think he, I think he means that. Anyway, Second um, Thessalonians 2. And look, if you will, um, he is describing the coming of the Antichrist in verse 10. And he says that when the Antichrist, he's called the lawless one, when he comes, his son of perdition, he will come with all the deception of wickedness for those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. For this reason, God will send upon them a deluding influence so that they will believe what is false. Now, you read a verse like that, you might ask, how can God delude a person? Does that not seem unfair? Well, first of all, it is very clear that those who are deluded are those who had an opportunity to respond to the gospel of grace, but they did not respond. Verse 11 begins with the words, and for this reason, looking back at verse 10, to those who did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. So behind the great delusion is a great refusal. It's identical to what Jesus taught in John 3.19, where he instructs us that people will refuse him because of their great love for sin. Verse 12 plainly says, notice, they took pleasure in wickedness. So the Bible is clear. What the King James calls a strong delusion is going to be sent on those who would not believe because they love sin more than they love the Lord. And you will meet people like that today. They'll, you talk to them about God and they're not interested. Why? Because they love sin more than they love the light. And so with that said, the Bible is very clear that while people get saved during the tribulation, let Scripture interpret Scripture. People who have heard the gospel prior to the rapture of the church will not be part of this great multitude that give their lives to Jesus Christ. The Bible is very clear over that. And so I know there's some popular novels of this guy who's living with his wife and she's a believer and all of a sudden she's gone, she's been raptured, woo! I guess I, she was right and he gives his life to Christ and he gets saved. That's not true. No, 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 no. God is very clear. Once these events happen, the church is taken out. We saw in the opening chapter, it happens very fast. God just begins with the signing of this firm covenant, this seven-year period. And we don't know if it's days, weeks, or months after the church is raptured, but it's very quick. And God is warning us that people, verse 12, in order that they all may be judged, condemned, damned, who did not believe the truth. Why? Because they took pleasure in righteousness. If you are listening to me somewhere over the radio, television, on the internet, and you are not a believer, it is very foolish 
to play Russian roulette with your soul, thinking that you're going to become one after the church is removed. And if you die lost, you will pay the penalty of what chapter 1 and verse 9 calls the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. This is a very grimly logical passage if you study it carefully. First, they took pleasure in wickedness. That is, they make a deliberate choice. Second, they refuse to receive the love of the truth. Third, the activity of the evil one steps in who deceives them based on choices they have made. And fourth, God sends on them a deluding influence that they might believe what is false. Believe a lie. And finally, they're judged for all of eternity. It's a slippery path that begins with a love for evil. And that leads to a rejection of the truth. So you witness to a guy who says, well, I don't think there's a heaven or I don't think there's a hell. Who are you sleeping with, pal? What drugs are you taking? Where are you getting high on? There's always behind it a love for sin. I can tell you there's always a moral issue behind it. That leads to a rejection of the truth. That leads to deception by the devil which leads to a judicial hardening from God. And that happens today. Jesus said to the Jews in his day, look, while the light is among you, walk amongst the light that, and believe in the light that you might become sons of light. And because they refused, Jesus said they could not believe. But in a wide scale, wholesale way, it's going to happen during this seven year period and it will result in sealing one's condemnation. So beyond the number of the multitude, let's also think about the nature of this multitude. When we think about the nature of this vast multitude, John highlights three simple facts concerning their origin, their arraignment, their clothing, and their praise. Look at the origin. I looked, and behold, a great multitude, which no one could count from every nation and all the tribes and peoples and tongues. Now, the Bible is clear that one of the great functions of the tribulation period is to bring both Jew and Gentile to Christ. Jeremiah said in the 30th chapter, for that day is great so that none is like it. And it is the time of Jacob's trouble, one of the terms used to describe this seven-year period. But he, Israel, shall be saved out of it. Zechariah the prophet said, I will pour on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. Then they will look on me whom they've pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. So we learn that these 144,000 Jews are saved. That's a fulfillment of prophecy in and of itself. And they're going to preach the gospel to Jew and Gentile alike. And the Great Commission is going to be fulfilled. What we're trying to do today, through so many means, it is going to be completed in this day. Every single language group in the world is going to hear. You say, how? Through 144,000 Jews? Yes, that's what the text says. Well, are they going to know multiplicity of languages? No doubt it would be like the gift of tongues in the first century. And God will give them the ability to speak all kinds of languages. I looked and behold a great multitude which no one could count from every nation. That's not Jewish people. All tribes, peoples, and tongues. Nations, that's the word ethnos 
We get our word ethnicity from it. He's speaking about the various cultural traditions of the world. Tribes. It refers to various family lines or clans. Peoples. That's a word used in the Bible to refer to various races, languages, glossolalia. He's speaking of languages, language groups within the various races of the world. A great multitude that no one can count. Join us again tomorrow as we conclude our look at the mysterious multitude addressed in Revelation 7. To listen again to this or any of the messages in our study of the Revelation, use the Search the Scriptures app for smartphones and tablets, or visit us online at searchthescriptures.org. You can also call us at 877-787-7478 and order today's program on CD or DVD by asking for message number REV20. And if you can help support Search the Scriptures by making a single gift or by becoming a monthly supporter, please let us know. Our phone number again is 877-787-7478 or click the Give button on either our app or at our website, searchthescriptures.org. Join us again tomorrow for the conclusion of our look at the mysterious multitude of Revelation 7 as we search the Scriptures.